Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Manjula Selvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. I think it's a film about consequences. Meanwhile, the nuclear alarm has rung again. It's closer to doomsday now than ever before. Russia itself may be thinking of deploying such weapons. We get worried in the West when he starts doing the nuclear saber-rattling thing. The state of the nuclear arms race in the age of Oppenheimer. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Age-old taboos. Girls would really like to stop being handed white shorts. Why athletes lose when we ignore periods in sports. Oh sun, oh moon. We have one world. We have one chance to get this right. Bruce Coburn and Susan Aglukark on singing through the climate crisis. And rocking with the Linda Lindas. There are crowd surfers and stuff, and it's really fun to watch. The teen punk gang you don't want to mess with. All today on Day 6. The Kids Are All Right edition. Well, we had a moment where it looked like the chain reaction from an atomic device might never stop. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. That's a clip from the new Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer. J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Los Alamos National Laboratory didn't blow up the world when they detonated the first ever atomic bomb in 1945. But Oppenheimer and his crew may have set the world on fire anyway, sparking a nuclear arms race that began with the atomic bombing of Hiroshima 78 years ago this weekend. Today also marks the 60th anniversary of the signing of the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Since then, advocates have made progress in nuclear non-proliferation efforts, and most nations no longer detonate their atomic bombs for testing. And yet, the threat of nuclear war depicted in Oppenheimer is still very much real today. Steve Fetter is a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. He's one of the people who sets the world's doomsday clock. Steve, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Pleasure to be here. You sit on the board of the scientist committee behind the doomsday clock. What exactly is the doomsday clock? It is a measure indication of how close we believe we are to a catastrophe, in particular a, a nuclear catastrophe. With midnight being the, the end, as I understand. Yes, being um, some significant use of nuclear weapons. So where on the clock are we at the moment? Right now, we are 90 seconds to midnight, which is the closest the clock has ever been to midnight. Wow. Largely because of the risk that is posed by the uh, current war in Ukraine and the constant threats by Russia to use nuclear weapons. Today is the 60th anniversary of the partial test ban of nuclear weapons. We know the harms caused by dropping nuclear bombs on civilian populations. But what happens if you're simply testing a nuclear weapon above ground? Well, the partial nuclear test ban prohibited testing in the atmosphere. And that was very significant because it ended the radioactive fallout from atmospheric nuclear testing. 
people began to become very alarmed by this in the mid-1950s when a large U.S. nuclear test contaminated the Marshall Islands and a Japanese fishing boat. When fishermen died from that exposure, there were dozens who experienced uh, radiation sickness. And radioactivity began to show up in mother's milk and children's teeth. So there was a lot of justifiable public concern about radioactive contamination from atmospheric nuclear testing. How often were countries testing their arsenals before this 1963 partial test ban? Oh, I believe there were over 200 nuclear explosions in the atmosphere before the partial nuclear test ban was enacted. And over what span of time was that happening? Well, 1945 was the first test, the Trinity test in New Mexico, which many people are now aware of because of the movie Oppenheimer. The U.S. and Russia and the United Kingdom ended nuclear testing in the atmosphere in 1963. But some countries, France and China, continued to test The last test in the atmosphere was a Chinese test in 1980. So how effective are these bans if countries are still testing their nuclear weapons? Well, after the uh, testing was ended in the atmosphere, testing went underground, and that did allow the U.S., the Soviet Union, other nuclear countries to continue their development of nuclear weapons through underground testing. The underground testing largely ended in 1996 with the comprehensive nuclear test ban, which prohibited testing, old nuclear testing. There were still, though, a few countries, India, Pakistan, and North Korea, who did not sign that agreement and who tested nuclear weapons more recently. That's right, because North Korea tested one uh, in 2017, as recently as 2017. Yes, That's correct. Even with all of these bans in place, nations do still test their nuclear arsenals. How do they do that? How is that possible? Well, they maintain the reliability of their nuclear stockpiles through a combination of computer simulation and non-nuclear testing. Computers have gotten vastly more powerful since 1996, since the end of nuclear testing, and allow very accurate simulations of nuclear weapons. And that is combined with non-nuclear testing called hydrodynamic tests that test the high explosives and their ability to compress nuclear materials, but not plutonium or uranium. And then finally, in the United States, we have the National Ignition Facility, a laser fusion facility, which can cause very small fusion explosions, and those can also be used to uh, measure the properties of materials as well as validate these computer programs that are used for the simulations. Now, this weekend marks a sad anniversary, the 78th anniversary of the first time an atomic bomb was used in active warfare. Uh, That was in Hiroshima. How worried are you that it will happen again? Well, unfortunately, I am very worried, foremost because of the war in Ukraine and the fact that Russia continues to threaten the use of nuclear weapons. Just recently, Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia and currently the deputy chair of the National Security Council of Russia, said that if Ukraine made progress in its attempts to drive Russia out of Ukraine, that Russia would have to resort to nuclear weapons. So this makes me very worried. But my worries aren't limited to Russia and Ukraine. 
We have North Korea, which is very unpredictable and which is uh, continuing to develop a capability to attack the continental United States with nuclear weapons. We have India and Pakistan, which have gone to war several times and are continuing to expand and develop their nuclear arsenals. And we have China, which is dramatically expanding its nuclear weapons, perhaps because it anticipates using those arsenals in some way in a conflict over Taiwan. So I think in all of these situations, we have concern about the possible use of nuclear weapons and any use of nuclear weapons would drive a concern that it would expand and escalate to a larger nuclear war. And that's why the doomsday clock sits 90 seconds to midnight. Yes, exactly. All of these all of these trends together are all negative. I should mention that in addition to the factors uh, that I just mentioned, all of the countries with nuclear weapons are modernizing or expanding their nuclear arsenals. That includes the United States, which has embarked on a trillion-dollar modernization of its nuclear arsenal, Russia, which is deploying new nuclear weapons, China, which is vastly expanding its arsenal. So many of these trends are headed in the wrong direction. What do you think it'll take to prevent that, to pull that, that, uh, the arm of the clock back a bit? I think if citizens realize the precariousness of the situation, the grave risks that are posed to humanity by the threat of the use of nuclear weapons, this might put pressure on governments, particularly in the United States and uh, the other democracies with nuclear weapons, to push for more limitations. Also, the non-nuclear weapon states would very much like to see the nuclear weapon states honor their commitment made in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to pursue nuclear disarmament. This was uh, seen by these countries as our end of the bargain for their agreement not to develop nuclear weapons. Steve, you've watched the Oppenheimer movie. Now, unlike most moviegoers, you think about this stuff on a daily basis. How did you feel when you left the movie? I left feeling very sobered, although perhaps hopeful that this movie would draw attention to the threat of nuclear weapons which I think was on many people's minds during the Cold War, but after the end of the Cold War really faded from public awareness. And so I think the Oppenheimer film can play a role, very useful role, in drawing widespread attention to the nuclear threat. Steve, thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Steve Fetter is a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. It is basically Donald Trump versus American democracy. Former U.S. President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty on Thursday to criminal charges laid against him earlier this week. He faces four felony charges centering around his alleged efforts to discount valid votes and overturn his 2020 election loss to Joe Biden. This is the third criminal indictment for Trump since he launched his latest bid to become the Republican presidential nominee in 2024. No other U.S. president has ever faced criminal charges. But despite these charges, a new CNN poll shows that 69% of Republican or Republican-leaning voters believe Joe Biden's presidential win was illegitimate. Trump also faces a possible fourth indictment over alleged efforts to overturn the election in Georgia. If charged there, he's expected to have his mugshot taken 
another first for a U.S. president. And there's some good news from the Amazon rainforest, where deforestation fell by at least 60% in July compared to the same month last year. That's according to Brazilian Environment Minister Marina Silva. It'll be part of the conversation at the upcoming Amazon summit in Brazil next week. The drastic improvement in the Amazon is due in part to political change. Last summer, far-right politician Jair Bolsonaro was leading the country. This year, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has taken power, and his administration has taken a hard line on illegal mining, drug traffickers, and land grabbers, while also creating more conservation areas and protections of indigenous land. Still to come on day six, Bruce Coburn and Susan Aglukark on their song to keep the world we know. That internal capacity to always be hopeful. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. Yeah, it all kind of fell apart tonight, but proud of ourselves. Canada is out of the running for this year's Women's World Cup, but the event is still on and pulling in massive crowds. With all the excitement on the pitch, you may have missed a groundbreaking change in the uniforms. This is the first World Cup where Nike has supplied its partner teams with shorts designed to prevent menstrual leaks. And lately, Nike isn't the only one talking about the fact that, big surprise, some athletes get periods. In recent months, several national women's teams have ditched their white shorts in favor of dark ones, for obvious reasons. And high-profile athletes have been speaking up about how their periods affect their work. I often feel quite bloated, so I make sure I'm well hydrated. Other factors like having maybe racing in a cooler suit because my body temperature goes up and I get heavier legs. So again, just stretching, opening up my hips a lot more. That's Emma Pallant-Brown. She's a professional triathlete and coach. Earlier this year, a photo of Emma running a triathlon went viral. In the photo, she's running hard, looking powerful, and a bit of menstrual blood happens to be visible on her swimsuit. A commenter criticized her for posting an image that was quote-unquote not flattering. But Emma said there's a reason she wasn't trying to hide the leak. I've definitely seen period taboos really affecting girls and young females in sport quite negatively. I think as an elite athlete, again, there's a lot of responsibilities to be open and honest and have these good conversations and talk about periods in sport. Alison Sandmeyer Graves is the CEO of Canadian Women in Sport, an organization that promotes gender equity in sports. She says there's a real cost to staying silent about periods. Alison, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. What do you think of Nike providing period-proof gear to athletes at the Women's World Cup this year? It is a fantastic step forward. Women gaining access to the uniforms and equipment that they need that fit their bodies, that work for them. Uh, It's been a long journey. And uh, this is a wonderful step, really, to acknowledge that many women do menstruate, that it is part of their sport experience. It can be a real uh, point of anxiety and sometimes a distraction, and setting them up for success allows them to really focus on the task at hand. Now, you're calling this a long journey. It's 2023. And why has it taken so long for brands and sports organizations to explicitly acknowledge periods? 
Well, I think there is a long history of gender inequity in the sports system, and it manifests in so many different ways. But specifically, when we're talking about menstruation, we're really going from women's reproductive systems being viewed as a reason why women could not or should not play sports. And now I'm talking decades ago, but they've, that excuse has been invoked in the last decade as a reason why women shouldn't play sports. Two, I would say a generation that has just pretended it doesn't exist. Let's just ignore it. Let's not talk about it. It's very taboo. There's a lot of stigma about it. And I'd like to think that we're entering into a new place. And I think this Nike kid at the World Cup is really saying, hey, guess what? Women do have their periods. And let's account for this in supporting them to participate to their fullest here in, uh, well, on the one of the greatest stages in sports, but also looking at that right into the, our, the grassroots of our sport. What is the impact that this taboo has on athletes or, or potential athletes? Well, I think there's an important context here, um, and it, uh, certainly we're not only talking about girls during their adolescence, but it's it's relevant to note that in those adolescent years, one in three girls in Canada is dropping out of sports, which means that they are not getting access to the near-term and the long-term benefits of sport participation, which we know can really create the foundation for mental and physical health and well-being, as well as leadership and other opportunities. And when we talk to girls about this in our research at Canadian Women and Sport, 23% of girls across Canada whom we surveyed said that menstruation is a barrier to their sport participation. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, having a period in and of itself is a reason why they can't play sport. But clearly there's something about that experience that makes it uh, a more comfortable choice for them to not participate. And in fact, 90% of girls said that they don't feel comfortable talking to their coaches about their body-related concerns. And that is, is because they don't think their coaches are equipped to have that conversation and to support them in that. You mentioned this one out of three girls. Do the same rates hold for boys in sports? Uh, in fact, it's much higher than what we see with boys. For boys, it's about one in 10. And there are myriad factors playing into that. But writ large, the what we understand is that the girls are not necessarily finding their needs and their wants met uh, within sport, particularly as they age. Some of the barriers that they report really go up as they head into those teenage years. And sport hasn't been totally equipped to respond to those needs and to really keep them in sport and to provide them with that quality, engaging experience that they're looking for. And so while uh, coaches uh, can't and frankly shouldn't do anything about the fact that most girls are going to menstruate. There's a lot of things that they can do in the environment to create a much safer and more positive experience for them. A simple example, and we're seeing this take off around the world, is that uh, research shows that girls would really like to stop being handed white shorts. <laughs> and so they're <laughs> yes. saying, please let us wear dark bottoms in our uniform. Uh, and it's a simple thing. We know leaks happen. <laughs> and it's an unfortunate reality for women who menstruate and girls. Uh, but this, you know, puts them in a position to be more comfortable and to to worry less about it. 
Well, this this normalization, this this shift in conversation. I mean, we've seen a couple instances of that this year. Uh, we've seen world class athletes talk publicly about how their period affects their performance. I'm thinking about people like a uh, triathlete Emma Pallant Brown and uh, skier Michaela Schifrin. What do you make of their openness on the topic? I think that goes a long way to destigmatizing conversations about periods. I mean, girls and women are are raised to believe that these are very private and and very taboo and we need to at all times make sure that nobody knows what's going on. Mm. And so the the fact that um that women are willing to talk about it and talk about it as part of their whole self and part of their athletic journey I think is really powerful for all women but especially for the younger girls and women who are looking to them as role models there is also uh, particularly when we talk about high performance you know they're optimizing just about every variable they can to get the athletes to the highest performance in the right moments and periods have to be accounted for in that And when we train so hard that uh, the period disappears, historically, that's been seen as as a good indicator that an athlete is being ready for high performance, when in fact we know that means they're not taking in enough energy to fuel their bodies. And that can lead to really devastating long-term effects, such as a very early onset osteoporosis, which... um, certainly something that is not associated with high performance. So there's there's a lot of different layers to this conversation. But the more we understand it and the more we can have a conversation about it, the better it will be for all women. What's interesting because a big part of why it's difficult to talk about this is because athletes are afraid of the of the backlash, of the voices that'll say, well, this is why women can't measure up. Do you worry about that when you're having these conversations? Well, that is a big part of, I think, the culture of sport and the narrative around sport that really sees things that are uniquely female as weakness. <laughs> and so uh, that is that is part of a broader fight, I would say, that women have been fighting in, in sport. And uh, I would like to really flip the script on that and to say, wow, aren't women incredible? Because they are going out there and doing all the same things that the men are doing. Uh, But some of them might be doing it while menstruating and wow us all with their athletic prowess and their leadership um, while also in a position where they are going through these things uh, within their bodies. Well, Alison, a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alison Sandmeyer Graves is the CEO of Canadian Women and Sport. Smoke of a thousand fires filling up the sky. We certainly felt a lot of that this summer. That's a song called To Keep the World We Know from Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn's latest album, O Sun, O Moon. 
It's his 38th album and it comes 53 years after he released his first. Through it all, Bruce Coburn has been celebrated both for his music and his activism. This song is a collaboration with Canadian Inuk singer-songwriter Susan Agu-Kark. To Keep the World We Know is about the global climate crisis, and it comes as the World Meteorological Organization confirmed July was the hottest month ever recorded in history. Bruce Coburn is back on tour next week with stops including some of the places bearing the brunt of this summer's severe weather events. He joins us this morning with Susan Aglukark. Susan Bruce, welcome to Day 6. Hi, nice to be with you. Good to be here. Bruce, if I understand correctly, this is the first time that you and Susan have worked together. How did this collaboration come to be? It was Susan's idea. I haven't done very many collaborations over the years, you know, a few, but... Susan got in touch with Bernie, my manager, and, you know, wondered if I wanted to try and collaborate on a song. And it sounded like a good idea to me. So I said yes. And Susan had the basic idea for the song. And then we came up with lyric ideas and tossed them back and forth for a while over the phone and the Internet. And, you know, that's how we got it done. Susan, how did the idea for the song, To Keep the World We Know, start for you? Well, so the idea kind of started percolating back in about 2016. Um, There was a series of incidences in Nunavut, and they started in Clyde River, uh, where Inuit in that community, a very small community, were organizing and advocating against seismic surveying. It was very concerning, but also when they organized the way that they did against something so universally large, it's the industry itself is huge in the world, the mining industry, Um, It just started this idea in my head. So the song and the idea was really about never becoming complacent. And then in 2021 and 2022, there were more incidences in Nunavut. So I started thinking, well, maybe it's time to write this song. And who best to write a song (laughs) like this? Like at the top of any songwriter's list is, well, Bruce Coburn. And would he? So I reached out to uh, Bernie and Bernie said, well, let's try. Let's ask Bruce and see what will happen. It was funny, too, because I sent the email to Bruce and he wrote back and I went running upstairs to my husband, Jock. Oh, my God, Bruce wrote back. Bruce wrote back. (laughs) And I hadn't even read the response yet. It was an incredible honor, but that's where it started. Susan, there are these lyrics in the song in in Inactitude. What do those lyrics say? We have one world. We have one chance. We have one time to get this right. It's really just, you know, making that statement as loud and as clear as we can. We have one chance here, folks. We cannot mess this up. And that's really what those words are saying. Bruce, this new song does have echoes of your 1988 song, If a Tree Falls. That was 35 years ago. Did it feel any different to write a song about the climate crisis now in 2023? Well, the idea for If a Tree Falls came from actually listening to a radio documentary about the destruction of rainforests in Borneo. When Susan and I first started talking about the song, everything was burning. So the emphasis, rather than being, look at what we're doing to nature, it was more like, look at what nature's doing to us because we've done this to nature. Uh, When we first started working on this, California was in flames. (laughs) And uh, when I started looking into it, it, what had escaped me was how widespread that is around the world, like the wildfire phenomenon. And then Susan pointed out that because of some sort of 
underground pollution, people were getting flames shooting out of their kitchen taps up mm-hmm. north. And I mean, that's a totally different phenomenon than wildfires, but it's motivated by the same problem, the same lack of responsibility on the part of people. People in industry really is what I mean, because it's not the people opening their kitchen taps that are at fault, and it's not the people who are being driven out of their homes by wildfire that are at fault, particularly as individuals. But as a culture, we have this problem. Maybe Inuit people, since their culture is somewhat different, don't have this problem, but we sure do. You know, but this and the song just kind of goes through the many of the places where wildfires are a big problem. And then floods and everything else um, on top of that. Yeah, which appear to be related. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a climate expert, but uh, to say that there's no climate change is completely foolish. To say that the climate change that we're seeing is not caused by humans is pretty suspect at this point. So, uh, I mean, the evidence is, is overwhelming in my view. We have brought ourselves to this point. You know, as Susan's Inuit lyrics say, it's kind of now or never. And it might be never, you know. We might be past that point already. Some people are saying that we are. We'll, we'll have to see on that. But I, I think about my 11-year-old daughter. I think about my grandchildren. And what are they going to grow up into? And it's it's terrifying. You know, it's interesting, Susan. I, I, I'm listening to, to, to Bruce talk about this song. And I, and I hear in it this call for change. I hear sort of a slight undertone of rage as well. Mm. And that could be just me as a listener hearing it. You're hearing it. Um, Talk to me about that. Absolutely. I think the song, um, of course, we hope that it's not now or never. But like Bruce says, maybe it is past that point. But in the meantime, what I love about a lot of Bruce's songs is you always feel a little bit of hope. Uh, We have to keep hoping. But to do that, we have to find that balance between rage and hope. I think Inuit in Canada especially, I mean, globally too, Inuit are very organized and very much in tune with nature. Without that relationship, we can't be who we are fundamentally as Inuit. And they understood for a very long time that we're kind of losing the battle here. My mother, who is very traditional, for example, Um, We were home and on the land, and she was acknowledging, I've never seen that species of bird before in Akhvet. And that was 10, 15 years ago. So we have to tap into that rage. Um, Don't become complacent. The change is happening. And if it's reached Inuit Nunangat, land of the Inuit, we have to be that much more afraid. Uh, So the message from me in the writing of this song is just as much to our Inuit leaders as well. I mean... It's easy to get comfortable. We cannot get comfortable. We cannot afford that. And I speak as an Inuk on behalf of Inuit Nunangat, indigenous in general. But that's beautiful country we have. We have to protect that. Bruce, what role do you think that that music and art can play in in people's lives in the midst of this crisis? Uh, I don't think art by itself does much of anything. Uh, other than express the feelings of the artist, which can be valuable. And uh, you reach uh, whatever audience you reach, and you may affect them. But in terms of of changing things in the big picture, uh, for art to be meaningful in that way, it has to fall on uh, a field of popular opinion that's ready to be motivated. If people are worried and people are thinking about it and people feel like they want uh, to do something, then a song can become a kind of anthem, you know, a focal point for that feeling, as we've seen with the songs that were popular in the civil rights movement. And it's motivational as long as the willingness to be motivated is there. You can write all the, the most powerful song in the world, but if it isn't heard by people who are receptive to the message, 
then it's not going to do much of anything. So we can hope that the effect of our song will be to encourage the people who are concerned to find ways to act, either by pressuring their politicians or getting together with their neighbors and figuring out you know, how to best move forward with whatever they think of. That's what we can hope for. Speaking of hope, uh, Susan, you've said that once upon a time, uh, Bruce's music gave you some much-needed hope when you were at a low point in your life. What was it about his music that helped you at that time? I, I left home uh, not as an artist or a singer-songwriter. Um, there's a lot, uh, the word is ilira, I-L-I-R, emotional fear. There's a lot of things that were stuck there for me. And Bruce, I don't know if you remember, but we did a show in Toronto together. And that was the first time that I had listened to a, a poet-songwriter. And I remember feeling a lot of release, if you will, um, realizing a songwriter isn't just a songwriter. There was a lot of things I was learning and still continue to learn about songwriting. And it was just this mental unblocking. Um, I was stuck thinking you have to be a songwriter and songs that I heard were just the local radio station at home. The scope of experience was very, very small at that time. And listening to his songs at that time, it's like, oh, I can write about anything. Yeah. I can write about anything. I mean, there's everything around you. Write about anything and everything. Um, he introduced me in that first concert to opening something different. And from there on, it was less pressure on myself to explore songwriting. It was this uh, new sense of hopefulness, finding voice. I have a voice. I have a right to speak out. I have a right to do all these things and not the singing voice, but my place as an advocate, as a writer, as taking up space on stage. It, it really literally started with finding voice and wherever it took me next. Hmm. Now, my last question before I let you both go. Uh, Bruce, you're restarting your world tour next week with a live performance in Whistler, B.C., what does it mean to you that you're going into a part of the country where wildfires are still raging? Wildfires are raging all over the place. A month ago, I was in New York when the, the smoke from Quebec is coming down there. And uh, you, can't, you can't miss it. <laughs> so I, what I expect to find in BC is probably more of that. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to playing a lot. Not necessarily on choking on the smoke. Not sure about how that's going to work. But um, I look forward to playing the songs for people. And, uh, you know, Whistler's a lovely place, so it'll be nice to be there. Susan, any chance we might see you on stage with Bruce someday? Oh, that would be incredible. I think that would be really incredible. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Bruce? Well, it's you know, that's in the hands of the Lord, I would say. (laughs) It would take a lot of coordinating and, you know, it might be hard to put together, but it'd be great if we could ever do it. <laughs> the Lord in scheduling, let's just say. <laughs> well, I, I guess audiences will just have to cross their fingers for that. It's been a real delight speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bruce Coburn and Susan Aglukark are both multiple award-winning Canadian singer-songwriters. Their song is called To Keep the World We Know, part of Bruce Coburn's latest album, O Sun, O Moon.
still to come on day six, your chance to win a day six tote bag if you guess the right answer to Rift from the Headlines. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. You... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. That was the Linda Lindas with their viral hit, Racist, Sexist Boy. It was filmed at the Los Angeles Public Library in April of 2021. And to say it took off would be an understatement. The library's tweet of the video has been viewed more than 4 million times. On YouTube, it's had more than another million views. The Linda Lindas are an all-girl punk band from L.A., ranging in age from 12 to 18. They were featured in Amy Poehler's movie Moxie and the Claudia Kishi Club. This spring, they were the first band to perform at the Scripps Spelling Bee, and this month they're on tour opening for Paramore. And it was only a year ago that they released their debut album, Growing Up. The Linda Lindas are Mila and Lucia de la Garza. They're sisters and they're 12 and 16. Their cousin, Eloise Wong, is 15. And their friend, Bella Salazar, is 18. Guest host Saroja Coelho spoke with the Linda Lindas last September, just ahead of their show in Montreal. And to set the scene, picture all four of them gathered around one laptop, It's after school, there's a ton of energy, a lot of unpredictability, and a ton of fun. Here's a part of that conversation. Well, it seems to me that being a Linda Linda is about a lot more than just being in a band. So I really want to ask each of you, what does it take to be a Linda Linda? Louise, I'm going to start with you. Um, we we try to have fun. Like, as long as, as long as we're doing something that feels right to us, I don't know, yeah. That following the instincts thing is really big in your music. I definitely hear that. Lucia, what about you? What does it take to be a Linda Linda? I, I think, honestly, I would say that we're still discovering that ourselves. We, it, it's fun um, in our band because we all contribute something a little different, but it all works together like really, really interestingly and really beautifully. So Mila, I'm coming to you next. What does it take to be a Linda Linda? I mean... Like, we just have a lot of fun, and, you know, we just pretty much goof off all day. I feel that. I mean, I feel that in the music, but there's also some really serious stuff in there, too. You clearly all trust each other a whole lot. Bella, I'm going to come to you last. What does it take, in your opinion, to be a Linda Linda? 
I think a requirement is that you need to like cats. You need to be a cat oh, lover. That is and the true. second thing is that you need to like to drink boba, which is like tapioca, like a little tapioca. We got, we got boba earlier today. So that is a very, those are very important things, which I'm surprised they didn't mention because that happens like all the time in the Linda Linda headquarters. Well, okay, wait, wait. Well, we were just talking about like emotionally, I think. Yeah, but those are legit things that you need yeah. to, to be a Linda Linda. Requirement. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. You have to love cats and you gotta love the boba tea. I gotcha. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. In summary, that's what we are. <laughs> Would you say that you meet the requirements? Of I just here? feel that I really meet all of these requirements. I, I wow. feel that yeah. the bar was high, yeah. but I, I'm i launching it. right They're over. Well, now that I'm an honorary Linda Linda, I got to ask you about the coming together of this band. Lucia, I'm going to start with you for this one. The four of you came together after this one-time girl band in 2018. Then you decided that you would actually form a real band and make it a thing. But what made you decide that this was it? You were going to embrace music and take it a step further. It wasn't like a decision that we all came together and made like, oh, now we're going to start doing a band. It was kind of just like, we're going to start playing music together and then we kind of discovered our joy for playing shows through that we we just played covers of like songs that we really liked we just like like play really easy versions of them because we were still like learning our instruments and we would just get on stage and even though we would make mistakes we would just have the time of our lives just like playing music that we loved and like in front of people that just really support us that just like felt like it made sense to us yeah Eloise I'm going to come to you next because while you've been talking a lot about the joy and the happiness wow there is also some like rage in this music you are tapping something deep where is that coming from for you uh I feel like when I write a song it's more like I don't um sit down and go okay I'm gonna write a song a lot although I guess I should um I I think that usually my songs come from, like, spurts of anger that I have. Like, if I'm really worked up about one thing or, like, one topic, like, I need a way to get it out, you know? And uh, songwriting is just, like, a really good outlet for me because that way I can pour everything I'm feeling into, like, playing and lyrics and stuff, you know? You've been really surrounded by music all your life. What kind of music did you listen to growing up? Who were you looking up to? Um, honestly, it was a lot of like Go-Go's, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, uh, Slater Kinney, Adolescence, Channel 3, The Crowd, Avengers. Uh, and now it's just kind of cool that we kind of get to like reconnect with these people that we never thought we'd like. That's got to be the dream. I mean, not only did you get to make music that was similar to them or inspired by them, you've actually ended up on stage with some of them. Who's the favorite so far? Our first big show was at the Hollywood Palladium with Bikini Kill. And that absolutely, like, changed things because that's when we started, like, getting serious about practicing and kind of getting really tight and playing our music. Let me go to the moment after you've formed this band. You get some shows, and then you write this song, Racist, Sexist Boy. And Mila, can you tell us the story behind that song? Um, the story behind the song is that I was at school, 
probably like two or three weeks before we went into total lockdown. And at this time, I like did not know anything about the virus because I don't know, I just didn't. But this boy at school came up to me like during lunch at the cafeteria and he told me that his dad had told him to stay away from Chinese people because of the virus. And I was really confused because I didn't know what virus he was talking about. And why would he have to stay away from Chinese people because of it, too? So I went home and I told my family about it and the band about it. And like the more we talked about it, the more I realized how like messed up that was. So Ellers and I decided to write a song about it. I want to know what it feels like to perform that song. How do you feel? Um, at first, when we were writing it, the song was a lot more angry. But now when we perform it, I think it's just like a really beautiful, I don't know, I think it's just really beautiful that we get to play that song. And it brings so many people together in a way that we never would have expected. Eloise, what about you? I mean, you take the lead vocals on that track. How do you feel when you perform it? Oh, it's fun, it's fun, because, it's fun because now like uh, a lot like kids break out, you know? And, and like there are crowd surfers and stuff and it's really fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, people are loving that song. And I'm wondering, like, when you're there, you're screaming into the mic at this boy. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like I feel like at this point, I'm not really screaming at that boy anymore. It's more like uh, I feel like I feel like it lets a lot of stuff out. Because, I mean, there's, there's always there's always stuff to be angry about. So it's nice to it's nice to be able to, like, yell. And it's nice and it's nice to just play as hard as you can, you know. Lucia, who was more excited, you or your parents, when that video was just everywhere? I don't think I understood quite the impact of it as well as my parents did. Um, I mean, obviously, we were all excited about it. We were all kind of like, we knew there was a number on our Instagram page just like going up and the views on YouTube going up or whatever. And then we started like getting request to do interviews and stuff. And that was like, I think we were, we were surprised to see it reach so many people that we looked up to. And also to see the amount of um, people that looked up to us now, you know, because at that time, I feel like the world was in a state where Many people felt like they were not allowed to express their story or just felt, felt like they didn't have one or it wasn't allowed to be heard or like it didn't matter. And that's something that no one should ever, ever have to feel like. But like, I think both us and our parents were also like a little overwhelmed at first just because it was so chaotic and we didn't really know what to expect. You know, we were still in lockdown. It was a pandemic. So it was like, well, we're just staying at home anyway what's going to happen? And now we're traveling all over the world and it's amazing and we're so grateful. All right, let me ask you this. You have met some really amazing people through this time in your band. Talked about it a little bit, but who is the coolest person you've met so far? Bella, I'll start with you. The coolest person I've met so far. On, what was it? Sunday, I met Ice Cube and that was cool. Whoa, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, what about you, Lucia? Oh, um, Karen O. Oh, we met, she's amazing. Um, I've met her a total of three times now, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll 
brag about that forever because I, I don't know. The first time I met her, I didn't really um, understand how big of a deal that was meeting her. And then the second time I met her, I, I did. And it was, it was kind of awkward, but it was really great. Then the third time, it was also kind of awkward because she was like going out of her trailer into the bathroom and I was just like standing next to the bathroom because I was waiting for someone that was in the bathroom. <laughs> and then, um, so she, she might not know it, but she has been an inspiration for us from day one. Yeah. Wow. Mila, what about you? People you've met along the way, who's the most amazing so far? Let's see. Okay. Two people that stand out like the most for me are probably Gina Shock, the drummer from the Go-Go's, because I'm also the drummer in our band. And that was, that was really cool for, for all of us, even. And then the other person would probably be Haley Williams from Paramore. Oh, she's amazing. And, Both of them yeah. are amazing. Yeah, she's super cool. All right, Eloise, I'm coming to you last. One of the coolest people you've met along the way. Who would you say it is? Um, I'm probably going to list like five. People have been really supportive of us since like we started or like Bethany from Best Coast or like Alice Bag and Frank. I just, um, we played Mosswood Meltdown and I got to meet Twomp Sacks and that was wow. cool. And wow. then, um, in at Pitchfork, the, the Circle Jerks play <gasps> and we were on the grass and then we see Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks. And he's like, what are you kids doing on the grass? He goes, get off the grass. And we're like, yeah, can we take a picture? And and he looked at me and he said, how many times have I taken a picture with you? And I was like, well, it's all of us this time. So we just, Kathleen Hanna, I mean, Carrie Brownstein. We just met so many cool people and like made friends with so many I don't know, they're not just amazing musicians that have done amazing things, but, like, they're really good people, you know? And it's just so cool to see that, like, these people that we looked up to, we can, like, play the same stages as them. And and they're, like, people, too, you know? Like, Lucia met Karen in the bathroom. Like, they used the restroom? What? And I don't know. It's just, it's just so, it's just so, it's so amazing, like meeting these people you know well it's been really amazing for me to meet all of you i have had so much fun this is the wackiest energy i think i've ever encountered on <laughs> thank you so much for just being refreshing amounts of electricity on a saturday morning thanks a lot really so cool to hang out thank you happy thank you. saturday yeah, eloise wong lucia and mila de la garza and bella salazar are the linda lindas They become an official teenage girl band later this month when Mila turns 13. The Linda Lindas are performing this morning at Lollapalooza in Chicago.
time, weather, and... Rift from the Headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. I am floating in deep water Like the unfamiliar That's Bruce Springsteen with Born to Run, the Chicago Gangsters with I'm an Outlaw, and Camp with The Otter. Lisa White of Quispamsis, New Brunswick, guessed the headline we were looking for. Outlaw Otter continues to evade wildlife officials in Santa Cruz. Congratulations, Lisa. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer, put rift from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Rift from the headlines. That's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Samir Chabra, Mickey Edwards, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Chris Slade. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer this week is Yamri Tasfu Tadessa. I'm Manjula Salvaraja in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day 6. kids doing on the grass. You go, get off the grass. (laughs) For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.